when I went to the board to ask for their approval, we positioned this as a long-term brand play that we were not expecting to see any short-term needle moved as a result of. But we were pleasantly surprised when on that Super Bowl week of 2021, we broke all our records for pipeline creation in a single week. And that was no coincidence, right? On Super Bowl week of 2021, we had our biggest pipeline week of that until that time in, in Gong's history. So that gave us all a lot of confidence that this that we've cracked something and, and this is something we, we should continue considering doing. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? To be a student of the game. Welcome, welcome to the GTM pod. We're on episode 20 already. I'm having fun. I hope you all are too. I'm just fresh back from a big road show. I was lucky to go meet a bunch of our portfolio companies and investors in LA, Seattle, went to Beaver Creek, did some snowboarding. I got to give a shout out before we kick off to Randy Seidel and the sales community for putting together an incredible enterprise CRO event. Truly one of the better run executive events I've been to in a long time. And Gong was actually the main sponsor which is a perfect segue into introducing my next guest. Where do I start? At one time, my biggest customer, then a fantastic partner for many, many years. Then somewhere along the way, we found ourselves in a slightly competitive atmosphere, but through it all, remained good friends. Uh, I am joined by the infamous Udi Lettergore, former longtime CMO of Gong, now recently turned chief evangelist at Gong. Udi. How are you, brother? I am doing great, Scott, and I couldn't be happier to give my first chief evangelist interview to you. I, I saved this one especially for you, so I'm excited to be here. I'm honored, and we're excited to have you. Now, for the listeners, remind me what number employee you were at Gong. I was employee number 13 at Gong, and uh, we just recently hit 1,300. So it's been a 100x growth in that short period of time. What an incredible ride. And it's been fun to see it all transpire. You guys have done such a credible job executing. And now you made this transition. So how is this fresh? I think just a few weeks. How has the transition been from CMO to chief evangelist? And, you know, the second part of that question, what are you now primarily focused on? Yeah, so I'm literally day five on the job. (laughs) So far, so good. Going pretty well. You know, our... Our fearless leader, Amit Bendov, the CEO of Gong, he, he put this in a really, I think, succinct way when he explained it to the company. He, he said, you know, when you send a, a rocket ship to the moon, it's not like that little emoji, the rocket with the three burners that just goes from Earth to the moon. In real life, it's actually a multi-stage rocket where there's one piece of the rocket that just gets the rocket ship out of the, the atmosphere and then breaks off. And then a second rocket ignites, which takes it into that loop around the moon. And then that shuts off. And then the third part helps the rocket land on the moon. And good startups that grow for the long term, that's kind of how they end up working. If you look at their executive teams, there's a group of folks who know how to take the business from zero to one, or if you want to talk in ARR from one to 10, or then there's a group that takes it from 10 to 100. And then when you want to go from a few hundreds 
to a few billions, it's usually another group of folks who come in. They don't all change at the same time. And there are a few rare ones that go a very long term. But when you look at companies, that's typically how it goes. There, there's few people who know what needs to, to do and are willing to do it to take the company from zero to five million versus people who know how to take it from half a billion to one billion. It's just usually different people, different skill sets, different passion areas. And so that's where we are. And uh, we've had a couple of transitions recently at Gong, as, as I'm sure uh, you're seeing in other companies in the industry. And I'm, I'm excited to step into the new role. And uh, we, we welcomed in a fantastic new CMO, Brian O'Connor, who came in from Samsara. And he has seen the next stage of growth that Gong is stepping into right now. He has really solid experience and skill sets that complement what we've already built at Gong. And so I'm very confident he's going to take the team to the next big stage that they need to be at. And that that gets me excited about my new role as uh, chief evangelist, which is uh, kind of a special ops unit, if you want to think of it that way, uh, reporting to the CEO, working on the most important projects. And uh, my, my first big project is in a space uh, I suspect you might have heard of. We're going to launch our new sales engagement product in the next couple of months. And that is my focus area right now, undusting that that area that has been stagnant for very, very long and bringing all of Gong's AI and other magical capabilities, including generative AI and everyone's seen chat GPT recently and what that can do. So imagine actually having a, a personal outreach cadence for every prospect and every customer rather than carpet bombing them with the same email to 5,000 customers because every opportunity is different. So that would suggest that the outreach needs to be different as well. So that's my current focus area. Very cool. I think I'll have to do some reading on this. What was it called? Sales and engagement, was it? Is that, is that, is that what it was? I thought you might have heard of it. <laughs> that was wrong. I'll do some research. I mean, it's, it's new to me. No, that's, that's super exciting. And what a fun role to, you know, being able to attach yourself to the, you know, number one initiative across the company and just pour all of your creative energy into that. All right. So other than being a chief evangelist at Gong, other than being an early supporter of both Sales Hacker and GTM Fund, a very talented piano player, a fun guy to drink wine with, a great father as well. I can see from, from your, all your photos on LinkedIn. And I know you're, you're pretty active in uh, multiple nonprofits as well. Anything else our, our listeners should know about you before we dive in? Oh, I think you covered it, Scott. Like, oh my gosh, you did a better job introing me than I could. I guess, yeah, but it, I, I try to, ha- I try to have it all. I try to spend my time helping both other startups and nonprofits. I'm on my kids' school board. I'm, I'm looking into other forms of uh, community work. And uh, in between, I do enjoy going to the gym, playing the piano, having a good meal, and uh, ending the evening with a nice glass of whiskey. No E in the whiskey. That's, that's a different whiskey. I love. It. What's your What's your favorite whiskey these days? Are you Japanese whiskey guy? You know, a lot of people like the Japanese are great, but I always find them to be almost like a copycat, but slightly elevated version of of a good Scotch. So I'm like, why not just go to the source? And the Japanese whiskey industry literally was started by two Scotsmen who moved there and were hired by the two big distilleries in in Japan. So I'm usually an Isla person, Lagavulin 16 being my go to on any weeknight. Neat or on the rocks? Uh, neat, neat. Nice. I'm going to have to try and pick, pick some of that up. So usually we kick this off with something topical in the news right now, tech news. But I'm going to scrap that because there's a lot of I want to cover with you. We only have a certain amount of time. So 
would love to just dive right into it. And there's two areas of focus that I want to cover with you and, and uncover some of your stories and your learnings. But before we do, I'm going to a bit and quickly share a story with you that I don't know if you know, and I don't know if I've even shared this publicly before, but I'll get all the listeners and, and yourself to fly back to 2017. I had just started at Sales Hacker and I was sort of thrown into the lion's den a little bit. You know, we had a great brand. Uh, we had world-class digital and in-person events. But on the sales side, our sales process was very Max-esque, you could call it. And if those of you who know Max know he's somewhat superhuman and can kind of make revenue appear out of, of thin air. But when I took over, you know, that meant we maybe didn't have a CRM. There was no training. There was no enablement material. There was no standardized sales process. And we had just reconfigured all of our pricing and, and our packaging. And we had bundled things together to increase our ACV and it made us a decently amount more expensive. And everyone has to know we were a fairly small lean team. And so there was no ramp period of, of any kind. You know, if I didn't bring in revenue from like day one, the company didn't make money. And so I think everyone here is maybe the good parts of my, my story and ultimately ending up, you know, closing millions in my first year and signing outreach. And then the acquisition happens and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in those first two months, I was struggling. You know, I had to spend a lot of my time on kind of non-revenue generating activities in order to set myself up for success for the long term, right? At least that's kind of what I thought. You know, we needed a real tech stack. We needed a real prospectus to share with potential customers. We needed a, a new chalk track since we were kind of changing it. So all this stuff. And I brought in a few smaller deals in those, those two months, but I missed quota for my first two months. And it was my first time missing quota ever in my career. And thank God I didn't know this at the time, but Max was actually thinking of, of firing me. He didn't let me know, but I've learned this since. And so then I'm on my third month. It was December and the month was going better, you know, starting to hit stride a little bit, but I still needed like a big deal or two to drop in order to hit quota. And you and I had been going back and forth for a little while, trying to negotiate on terms. And it looked like the deal was going to push to January. And I was super stressed out. It's like getting into Christmas time. And I can't remember the details. I don't know if I genuinely just told you. and <laughs> was like, hey, man, like, I need to find a way to get this deal done. Or you just maybe picked up on it. But I remember you signing a six-figure contract right before the end of the month that put me well above quota and also showed me that these larger contracts were actually possible, which frankly, I was starting to doubt at the time. And from that point on, I never missed quota again and, you know, had this renewed confidence in, in what we were doing. And I, I guess the rest is sort of history. But without that deal, I don't know if I'd be at where I am today. So truly wanted to tell you that and, and thank you for that. Oh, my gosh. Gonna make me tear up here. It's true. It's really true. Do, do you remember that? 
I, I, I do vaguely remember, I do vaguely remember that you, you were the new kid that Max hired and, uh, he was trying to grow the business. And I, I think we were going to sign the deal one way or another because we appreciated the community that Max had built both online and, and in the world of events and uh, like everything. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later today as well. We, we, when we do something, we like to go big. And if we're going to be sponsoring the community, we want to be the biggest, the best. We want to be up in the marquee signs. We want to have the biggest booth. We want to have the longest speaking opportunity. We have to be on the biggest stage. And so we, we like going big. And we did this from the very early days. I always preferred putting a lot of eggs in one basket to make an impact. Because if you peanut butter spread something, you're not going to make any impact. I think that's one of the mistakes startups and folks make by just spreading and diversifying everything so thinly that you're not giving anything a chance to truly make an impact. If you're going to take the tiniest booth at a big show, who's going to see you? Like, how will you know if the strategy was wrong or the execution was bad? So we decided to go with a few partners and Sales Hacker was one of the big ones early on. And we just decided like we want to be you know, the, the marquee sponsor of everything. And once we got that deal structured the way we wanted to, we, we went all in. I, I did very few events in those early years, but I wanted to do all the ones that Sales Hacker did. So thank you for being my partner on that. And I'm, I'm super glad it worked out well for you too. It's a lot of fun and led to a great continued partnership. But yeah, at the time, young, green, Canadian kid trying to negotiate with, with Udi. And I now know since... Some of my favorite friends are green. Just look behind me. And I now know since then, because we par- partnered many times after that, that you, I think you took it easy on me negotiating that, at that one time. So anyway... Getting to the, the bulk of this, and you know, I was telling you before we started this, when I prepare for these episodes, I like to think about what my guests' superpowers are. And you know, certainly you have a lot, you know, leadership could be in there, many things could be in there. But I think there's two I want to hone in on. And one you're really well known for, of course, and number one is brand. And you know, I think without question, Gong's brand is you know, tier one across SaaS. I don't know anyone who, who wouldn't say that. And then, you know, two, and maybe this is just for my unique vantage point, but is negotiation, which we kind of just talked about. And, you know, I think you have this incredible way of being firm, but everything is based in kind of data and logic. And so that makes it fair. And then also never pushing your hand, you know, so far that, a relationship doesn't stay intact, you know, for the future. And, and that led me to always coming to you first in the sales hacker days, right? But let's start with brand, because I think when people see your name on this episode, that's probably what they're clicking on it for. And maybe you can share a story about building a brand like Gone that everyone loves. And I certainly don't know any SaaS CMOs that have put together a Super Bowl commercial. So maybe let's start with that story because that's pretty cool. I was happy to chat about that. I, I do know a few CMOs who've done Super Bowl commercials because I, I talked to all the ones I could get hold of before we, we embarked on that crazy journey. And, you know, I think doing Super Bowl was some combination of part flex, part fake it till you make it. And I'll explain what I mean. So when people see a brand on the Super Bowl, what do they immediately think? Like, oh, this has got to be like a this huge household brand. They're spending millions to get in front of every household in the US. I mean, they've got millions to spend. They must be really confident about their growth. They might even be profitable. You know, they've got to do a lot of business. 
And that, that's what I always thought. And I love finding loopholes and hacks in the system where you can create that sort of impression, but do it at a fraction of the investment that people imagine that you need to do it. And, you know, our mutual friend Max is amazing at doing that as well. And so I, I really got into the weeds of what are the different options of getting on the Super Bowl? You know, you can, on one end, you've got Pepsi, who uh, I think up until this year sponsored the halftime show. They, they gave that away this year. Their, their business didn't allow them to do that again, but they did that for many years. That, that cost many, many millions, tens of millions. And then there's doing the national spot, which in the last few years cost anywhere between five and six million for one 30 second break. And that's not including developing the actual creative and all the digital channels that go around that, which typically would cost brands another couple of million. So you're almost at like 10 million for doing that 30 second commercial. But then as, as I got into it more and more, I discovered that there's actually regional options and there's inventory that local broadcasters, like whether it's CBS or NBC, whoever's broadcasting that year, they allocate local inventory to regional stations. There's one in Seattle, there's one in the Bay Area, there's one in New York, and in other other areas in the US. And then they sell some of the inventory during the same commercial breaks between the quarters and before the game and after the game. But they sell that just to regional advertisers. And that costs a tiny fraction of what the national spot does. And if you're sitting in San Francisco and watching the Super Bowl, and you see the Gong commercial, you have no idea whether that same commercial was aired nationally or only in your neighborhood. You have no idea. It's the same experience. And so I'm like, bingo, there's, there's our way in. And the beautiful thing about broadcast television, network television, is that it, it is priced based on the population in the different metropolitan areas. So you can imagine a large city like New York costs a lot. A smaller city like San Francisco costs less and, I don't know, uh, Boise will cost even less. So that's a great hack to know if you're in B2B marketing, because if you have a hub where there's a big concentration of your customers, but the actual uh, consumer population is pretty small, you're not going to pay a lot to advertise in that market. So that's what we did. I identified in the first year it was three markets, San Francisco, New York and Seattle. And I got the regional pricing and I advertised only in those three areas. I did not hide it, but I also did not overemphasize when we promoted our commercial that we're doing this only locally. And we knew in any case, just like with any offline advertising that we've been doing, whether it's out of home or or radio or or some in-person experience, if we amplify this to our audience on social media, which is our captive audience that follows us and wants to get updates from us, then we could make this thing explode. And that's what we did with Super Bowl. Uh, the first year we did it was, was 21. We did it again in 22. And so with a very modest investment, I'm talking very modest, I'm talking a, a six-figure investment, not even a seven-figure investment. A six-figure investment that included everything, the media, the creative, the digital support, all of that. I was able to air the commercial in three pretty major metropolitan areas which covered more than 60 or 70% of Gong's customer and prospect base, because in those early years, we, we sold a lot to Silicon Valley companies. And so just San Francisco alone probably covered like 60% of my audience. And then I, I used data to actually uh, decide on Seattle and New York as my, as my secondary hubs. So we were able to, to do that commercial. People talked about it as if we'd spend millions. I didn't bother correcting everyone who said that. Like, I don't mind them thinking that. 
And then we amplified it on social and we did a whole giveaway campaign and had hundreds of people outside of Gong share our commercial on social media on Super Bowl day for a special edition Bruno t-shirt or something. And it just went crazy. And when I went to the board to ask for their approval, we positioned this as a long-term brand play that we were not expecting to see any short-term needle moved as a result of. But we were pleasantly surprised when on that Super Bowl week of 2021, we broke all our records for pipeline creation in a single week. And that was no coincidence, right? On Super Bowl week of 2021, we had our biggest pipeline week of that until that time in, in Gong's history. So that gave us all a lot of confidence that this, that we've cracked something and, and this is something we, we should continue considering doing. Thank you for sharing. I, I can say I was one of those folks who thought you spent millions and millions on this. I did not. I, I've probably handed over to you more money than I have to all the Super Bowl vendors combined. That is an incredible story. And I loved just the, the halo effect. And I think that's also a good thing to hone in on is, is I've seen you again and again make an investment and then find ways to amplify that investment, make it more evergreen, make it last longer, you know, through contests, through engagement. And I remember you, I think you like teased pieces of it before on LinkedIn. Like it was like a whole, it was like a month of seeing Gong's Super Bowl commercial, even though, you know, it takes place on that one, one Sunday. I think today there's so many beautiful ways of taking any offline asset and amplifying it on digital to make it look so much bigger than the investment you actually made. I'll, I'll give you another small example that, that we've done. Think billboards. Where's like the, the, the ultimate place to put a billboard for maximum exposure and you'd imagine price-wise as well? What's a place you can think of putting like a really expensive, high exposure billboard? San Francisco airport. San Francisco airport. A lot of people would say Times Square, New York right? You, you get crazy foot traffic there. Depend, depending, yeah, what, what industry you're in. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, yeah, which audience you're going for. So, so here's, here's a, a, another, uh, I guess, not well-known secret, but, but more and more people are, are understanding this. Times Square, there's probably hundreds of billboards, both static and, and digital, around that, that area. And some of them are dirt cheap. Like, you can get a billboard probably as big as the wall behind me, for 2000 bucks, a digital billboard for one day that you're rotating with like eight other advertisers. You can buy that for like 2000 bucks for a day. I'm sure every business would agree that that's a very modest investment. Now, why would you go do that if it's, you know, behind this dingy hotel in, in Times Square? Well, here's why. Because if you know what times it's going to air on that day, you can send a photographer, pay them 150 bucks, a local photographer to go get some really nice shots from nice angles, make it look much bigger than it is, show some of the lights and, and traffic of Times Square around it. Now you've got some really nice photos of your billboard in lights in Times Square that you pay $2,000 for. And then you go and blow that up on social media. And then you get to the hundreds of thousands or millions of your actual audience members that already follow you on social media. And they go, oh my gosh, Gong is advertising on Times Square. Like, these guys must be nuts, you know, with all their success and the millions that they're spending. Like literally I spent $2,000 on a, on, on a Times Square billboard and then just amplified it on social media. I didn't care 
how many random tourists walking out of the Phantom of the Opera in New York are looking at my billboard. I, I did it to show my social media fans. And I did the same when I hired a bunch of uh, rideshare cars and wrapped them with our branding. I did the same when I branded food delivery robots in, in San Jose. I have no idea where they actually ended up, but on social media, they did really well. So thinking of those offline investments that can be very, very modest and then just blowing the heck out of them on social media and other digital channels, that, that's, that's a really interesting hack that I don't think enough brands are taking advantage of. That's excellent. Yeah. You don't need naked guitar guy looking at your Times Square ad, but you can, you can take it and, and amplify it everywhere. And, you know, something, again, we'll, we'll bring up Max because he's such a close mutual friend. He always says, you know, it's not your lack of resources, it's your lack of resourcefulness. And so, you know, you can get things done if you take the time to think creatively. And, okay, last thing I want to talk to you on brand, because I think you have a, a really unique vantage point. And it's Gong did such a great job and taking brand and then turning that into like raving fans, which were then brand advocates, and you're spending zero money, you're spending not a dime. And there's people out there doing their own LinkedIn posts and speaking at conferences in rooms you're not even in. And I've been in those rooms, particularly when we were in, in a competitive niche. I'm like, oh, like, do you work for going? No, they were just, you know, raving fans. How does that happen? And if you can strip away that like, Table stakes is having an incredible product, which Gong does. Strip that away. Like, how, how did, how did that happen? So I, I love talking about this topic, as you can imagine. I will touch on two points because I could literally go on for four hours about this, but here are my two main takeaways of, of what worked well. And make no mistake, there's like a much longer list of things that we could have done better. But of the things that really, really work well, I'll say two really contributed to the brand that you're talking about. Number one, I won't even take any credit for. There, there's a great saying that I, I forget who to attribute to, but it is brand is way too important to leave it to marketing. And I'll explain how I interpret that at Gong. Companies often go to their head of marketing and say, hey, we want you to build us a brand. I've, I've heard countless time. We want you to build us a brand like Gong. And they think that's a marketing thing. It's not, folks. It's not. I cannot take credit for building the Gong brand. When we decided to build a brand, around raving fans and create raving fans. That was a company-wide decision that started from the CEO through the entire executive team and trickled down to every last SDR support engineer and product engineer. And here's how it comes to life when done properly. So when we say we want to create raving fans, we take that to the extreme, like the recurring theme you might be identifying here in everything that we do. So when our recruiters do everything they can to create a raving fan experience for a candidate, we'll often see those candidates go and write a rave review on Glassdoor, even if they didn't end up getting an offer because they enjoyed the experience so much and felt so valued and seen that they still want a chance to work at this company in the future. And they took the time to write a raving review on Glassdoor. I haven't seen a lot of companies where a candidate will go do that if they don't even end up getting an offer. When our CSTAT scores are somewhere in those high 90s uh, because our support team is going above and beyond and taking care of every customer around the globe at unearthly hours, that's how you create raving fans. When our product engineers will jump on a call with a customer because they're having an issue that 
they can solve quickly. They won't make you fill out 20 forms and wait weeks for a response. They'll jump on a call now because Gong is a mission critical system for many of our customers and they'll solve it for you. And we do that for everything that we can in our sales experience. And if you've ever been to a Gong event or, or came across a piece of Gong content, which is the second topic I'll touch on in a minute, everything we do goes through that lens of how can we create a raving fan experience? And when the magic works and every department in the company does that from engineering to people, to sales, to marketing, to support, that's how you create a brand that has raving fans. It's not because marketing picked a cool bulldog to put on the website. That, that does not create raving fans. It can help. We are the stewards of the brand. We, we cannot create the brand if the company doesn't decide to go all in and doing this as one. So that's, that's my most important takeaway for really, really building a brand. What do you want to stand for? Now show me how every one of your 1,300 employees is living up to that every day. That's how you create a brand. Not, not by asking marketing to pick cool colors for the website. And then the second thing, which, which here I will narrow in on the marketing angle, and that is in the very, very early days when Amit, my CEO, and I were, were talking, well, what are we going to be known for? Because if we open up Amazon, we look for books on sales. There's over 100,000 books on sales you can buy on Amazon. Actually, the search function stops counting after 100,000. So there's a lot more than that. And... The problem with those is that they were mostly written by personal experiences. Uh, some of our mutual friends wrote some of those books, right? If, if a guy headed up the SDR team at Salesforce, he wrote a great book about it. And someone else headed up the Xerox sales team and he wrote their experience about it. But most of those books, if not all, could not easily be applied to other companies because they were written based on one personal experience and circumstances that worked for that author. And we said, well, what if we use data that we started accumulating by recording gong calls at our customer sites and actually showing people what works and doesn't work based on data, like in these arguments, how do you open a cold call and what should a good email look like and how many questions should you ask and how long should you wait after talking about pricing? What if we showed people the data and put an end to these arguments? And that, that was our content strategy from day one. And I do know based on lots and lots of testimonials that I hear from people like you that that really worked because this was a novelty when we started putting this out in late 2016 and then really built, built the brand in 2017 with my good friend, Chris Orlob, that you know, who authored that Gong Lab series of content. And people still send those around. We're still recycling some of that 2017, 2018 content because it's that good and people are just nuts about it. And that's what causes all these cocktail party conversations. Like, oh, did you see the latest Gong Labs? They, they talked about how women are better sellers than men because they're better listeners and they actually have more patience so they don't interrupt their counterpart quite as often as men do and all these things. And it, it was mind blowing to people because it either confirmed very strong opinions that they had but could never prove or in even better cases, it was counterintuitive to what they were thinking which also commands a conversation. A good example of that was when a couple of years ago, we published that salespeople who swear and curse on their sales calls actually have higher win rates by up to 8% compared to nice folks like you that would never use a word like that. Never in a fucking million years. <laughs> exactly. So as, as you're demonstrating live, this created a whole shitstorm on LinkedIn when we published this with almost equal parts of the audience going, well, I never, and how dare you? 
Uh, and the other part, having a complete field day with enjoying this, this is what I've been saying all these years and drop that F-bomb and use that S-word. And when it when it's used as, as a very specific mirroring technique, if you've read uh, Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference, he talks about mirroring and labeling. So when you do that and you pick up on a cue from your prospect, if she is using some of those words and seems comfortable around it, she will feel very comfortable if you use that back at her. And that creates rapport and rapport creates trust and trust creates business. So that's that's the chain of events that happens there. But people didn't even bother looking at the data. Just the headline blew their minds off and they were so loquacious about it, which is the dream of every marketer. Like you want to put a piece out there that people can't stop talking about. So that that is the second takeaway there. Don't be afraid to stand for something. Don't put out trivial content because that'll never build your brand in any meaningful way. If, if someone can Google the three tips for getting through the holiday season that you just put together, then why bother? Put together something that takes a stand, can be controversial or polarizing if, if it calls for it. And then you have a chance of people talking about what you're doing. And you notice I didn't talk about our product at all during all this stuff. So number one takeaway was brand is a all company sport. Everyone from the CEO to the support engineer have to take part in building the brand. Marketing can only be a steward and create the packaging for it. And number two is the content strategy has to offer something new and something conversational that people will want to talk about because it's new, it's thought-provoking, it's controversial. So those are my two out of many possible giveaways. That was pure gold. And it, it actually reminds me of a conversation I was having this week with you know 25 CROs and we were talking about the modern, you know, revenue stack. And one of the things that was brought up is that most of these technologies like, don't have a point of view. And they're like, I want to be, I want to be told how to use this. I don't, this is new to me. You're, you know, you're telling me I need this category, but then you're kind of loosely standing for something or loosely having a point of view and putting a stake in the ground is incredibly powerful. And you can move that. You can change that point of view. It can it can evolve over time. But I think now, especially as complexity increases across the you know, revenue landscape, people want to be told you know, the best way to interface with this technology. And I think a lot of folks sometimes get scared. That's a really important reminder, Scott, that you know, the, as the old cliche says, nobody wants to buy a drill. People want a hole in the wall. And that hole in the, in the wall usually consists of more than a drill. It consists of someone who knows how to use the drill, who knows how to use it in a clean way that won't break the whole wall and won't make a big mess. And so to complete the analogy, when people buy business software, don't assume that they know how to use it and that they have the motivation to do it and create the training and enablement and best practices. Like you've got to show them the way. You've got to complete your product with services and many product just come as it is. Like, here's a great piece of technology and I go figure out what to do with this. And I think that's where many product products and companies go to die because they don't completely build the workflows and the best practices and communities around that, that, that really get the maximum value out of that. Absolutely. And you are right. We could probably go for two more hours on this, this specific topic, but I want to get to a few more things and... One is negotiation, another one of your superpowers. I've seen it firsthand. And I think it's really topical because budgets are tightening, tightening, you know, across the board, saving money, even if it's 15% on technology providers, services, that really matters right now. And if you can get 
your entire executive team, better at negotiating, that really helps. And I've sold to many marketers, many C-suite marketers, and this is maybe a broad sweeping take, but negotiation in my personal experience isn't typically a strong suit. And it was with you. So you must have a framework because I also believe you passed it down to your direct reports. At least it felt like because I eventually started working with them and they seem to be taking a... Who's been giving you a hard time, Scott? <laughs> yeah, they, they were taking a look at your, 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 uh, your playbook. So how should execs or, or buyers in general think about negotiations? And if you have a story, that's great. Or just, you know, some thoughts. So yeah, I, I wish I had a like detailed methodology or framework to give you. I, I don't. I, I, I can give you some principles that I use, whether I'm negotiating with a vendor or an employer or, or a client. So uh, a, f- a few things come to mind. Number one, when you put out an offer or a counter offer, you have to be prepared to walk away and if someone calls your bluff. So you know if you're saying, no, this is my price and that's the lowest I can go, then you know that you might have to walk away from the deal if they say, sorry, this is still too expensive. And I, I know those moments after hitting sand, you're like, shit, should I have been so firm? Like, what if they, what if they say no? And then they come back and say, okay, let's do it. And you go, yes, I'm so glad I stood my ground. Now, th- there will be cases where they say, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't afford this. Now, I'm not in a position to tell anyone what your sort of backline is or, or, how much you should concede for. But if you have options and you know there's going to be another one who comes in tomorrow and is going to take that same resource, whether you're selling sponsorship for an event or trying to hit your quota with as few deals as possible, if you've got the pipeline and you know you can afford to walk away from a deal, then then you can make that offer. Obviously, we're going to be in different situations where there's some deals you can't walk away from. If this is December 31st, you need to close your quota, you, you probably would have taken whatever I would have given you. But if you can, just be, be prepared to walk away. In the same vein, I will say, and, and I told you a story before we, we went on air today about our mutual friend, Max, helping me out in a similar situation, which is n- know your value. Know your value. And, and once you truly know your value, don't be embarrassed about asking for it. If you know you're worth X, but someone is offering you half of X, you should just walk away. You should walk away. Now, if, if everyone is offering half an X, then maybe you don't know your true value. That's, that's a different problem some people have. Assuming you're well aware of your value, and sometimes you need good friends to remind you of that, whether it's the value of your product in the market or the value of the, the audience that you're selling or the value of your time and expertise, if you know what that is, then ask for it without being ashamed, without being embarrassed. And here's a tip based on actual gong data. If you're doing this in a live conversation, whether it's over Zoom or in a meeting, once you state your price in a very factual, unashamed way, shut the F up. This is one of the biggest mistakes we see salespeople making on millions and millions of sales calls that we've analyzed, that they will state their price. And then three seconds later, they'll jump in and start requalifying it with things like, well, that's the list price and we can get creative and tell me what your budget is and we'll see what we can do and so on and so on. Why would you do that? You just stated your price. Shut up. Let the other side think about it. Sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised when they go, well, that sounds reasonable, which is an, an answer I hear more often than you'd think if you're being reasonable. And other times they might have a question or a pushback, but then you can ask them, okay, so what were you thinking about? And what would be your your sort of frame of reference to, to, to work around this? And then we get creative and we find a solution. But just by shutting up, 
you will either get the answer you were hoping, or at the very least, you'd learn more. Definitely, you'll learn more than if you keep talking. So embrace that awkward silence after you name your price, just shut up. And on the same hand, I will also say this also came out of our research. Don't do this over, over emails. Uh, do, do not have pricing conversations over emails. At least the initial ask and expectation setting should be done live because that's where you see the small body language cues that tells you if you're totally off track, if this is going to happen, if this person even has the authority, if they still have the interest. And then you can do the fine tuning over email, but don't, don't make that big ask over email because you're losing a lot of the, the nonverbal cues that you can get during a, a live call. And I think, I think the last big one that I would, that I would mention when I go into negotiation, most negotiations in life are not a one time deal, whether it's, it's a life partner or negotiating with your children, negotiating with business partners, like, like the examples that you gave earlier. I'm always thinking about this long term relationship and. You can't build a long-term relationship if you know someone's getting screwed. That's that's just not the way to do that. And so I always look at it through both sides of what are they trying to get out of this? In your case, it was you need to hit quota by December 31st. What do I want to get out of this? I want to know what I'm spending for the next 12 months on the biggest conferences. I want to know that nobody's going to have a bigger booth, the bigger logo, a bigger speaking opportunity. Let's get this done. You're happy. I'm happy. Everyone's happy. So I think... Some people come with a very competitive point of view of this is a zero sum game and anything I give is is something that I could have gotten. And they don't spend enough time thinking about how the other side walks away happy so that they're actually committed to this relationship. And and you said, you know, because of the type of relationship that you and I built, you used to call me first for lots of opportunities, even before they were out on the market. And many times I I swept them up and gave you what you were going to look for anyway, making it a very short easy sell for you. And I was happy that I got first dibs on these things. So that's the kind of benefits that you get from a long-term relationship. You want to build trust. You want to build open communications. You can only do that if, if both sides come away thinking they got a good deal. So that, that would be my last big takeaway on this. That's perfect. And it's funny because you said you didn't have a framework and then you outlined a pretty damn good framework, I would say, in, you know, be willing to walk away, know your value, Shut up, do it live when you can, and play the long game. I think that's a pretty pretty good five-step process to, to keep in mind. Who knew I had a framework? <laughs> there you go. Okay, I want to get to a listener question. So just for new listeners, uh, you can send in the questions. We do them live in future episodes. I thought this one was super relevant. It's from a content marketing manager. How do I get my executive team bought in on creating content on LinkedIn I've seen it work for a lot of orgs, but they just don't seem to get it. Who better to ask this question than than you? Awesome. So I love that question. I've got a two-part answer for you. So part number one is go prove it to them. Just don't don't ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness. I've, I've been living most of my life that way. I occasionally get into trouble, but for the most part, I'd say it's going pretty well. Go do it and prove them wrong or prove that you're right. The beautiful thing about posting on social media and and collecting leads on social media and bringing them to your website is it, it costs little, if anything. That's why Gong relied and still does on our social media strategy. In the early days, I was on a shoestring budget like many of the listeners today. I went and built a social media strategy that forced us to think about what creative content people would actually flock to and want to follow us to read more of without having to pay for any ads or, or any subscriptions. 
And that's how we got to our first few thousand followers. So go create amazing content. We talked a little bit earlier about what that might look like. Have a stand. Don't be trivial. Make it bold, controversial, polarizing, obviously respectful and, and appropriate for your audiences. Don't be controversial for the sake of being controversial, but put out great content that people want to follow. In that piece of content that you put out on social media, make sure you have a call to action to another piece of gated content. And that's how you convert that anonymous reader to a known lead on your website. I'll give a quick example for, for folks who maybe are not familiar with, with the technique. Uh, we publish all of our Gong Labs article in the public domain on LinkedIn. So let's say you're reading an article about seven tips for having better sales conversations over Zoom. In the middle of that article, you'll find a call to action. If you want to download the full cheat sheet of 21 tips for better sales conversations, click here to download. That takes you to a landing page on the Gong website where I will capture your email and then give you that template. So I've lured you in through that ungated piece on LinkedIn. You were an anonymous lead. You were in the zone. I offered you another piece I knew you would be interested in. And when people click on that, I see a 70 or 80% conversion rate on those landing pages because people are so excited to continue reading about the topic. And that's how I capture your email. And now I can continue nurturing you with email programs and the such. So if you build a program like this and you actually go to your boss who doesn't believe in posting on social media, say, this is what I meant when I said we should post on social media. Look at all these wonderful leads that are coming in, downloading our content, getting on sales conversation. It all started with publishing on social media. So that's that's the first thing I would try. The second thing I will say, which is giving a live example of, of being somewhat polarizing, if this doesn't work and your CEO refuses to understand the value of doing this and, and you feel strongly about it, you might need a different boss. And I've I've seen marketers spend too much time in a company where their CEO, quote unquote, didn't believe in marketing. You know, it's funny because I've never met a CEO who didn't believe in sales or engineering, but we've all heard of the CEOs who don't believe in marketing. I've got a long rant about that. And, and it's, I think it's mostly our marketers' fault, our, our own fault, because there's many mediocre marketers like any other profession out there that don't really show the value of their work. But if you are not one of those, uh, you just might have the wrong boss and you, you probably don't want to spend five years trying to prove why you need to exist and why you should get program budget for what you want to do and are passionate about. So move on. I think that's a, a fantastic answer. The only thing I'll, I'll add there, and it's not actually LinkedIn related, but I watched you do a similar framework of pushing people to gated content uh, actually at live events as well. I remember watching Chris, Chris Orlob on stage and he would walk through seven steps of maybe a 12 step, you know, guide. And then at the end, you know, have a QR code that people could download it and you'd watch everyone's phones go up and then boom, all of a sudden they're in the, the pipeline. You don't have to worry about scanning people's badges for no reason. I remember those well. I was sitting back at the office hitting refresh on my uh, whatever Marketo dashboard and seeing those downloads. That's how I knew Chris was done talking because people were on their phones downloading the content asset. That's awesome. Another good play for the marketers out there that are looking for events and things to do at the next speaking gig. Okay, I've, uh, I've kept you longer, but I do have one last question and I keep it vague, always do. So you can take it anywhere you want. You could highlight something we already talked about or something you're just thinking about right now. But what's one actionable tactic or strategy that revenue leaders or founders can implement today that will move the needle? I think the tactic, especially in this time that we're living in, is to focus on back to basics. Your buyers, like our buyers, like everyone's buyers right now, 
are more conservative than they were a year and a half ago. They're less looking to innovate and be early adopters unless, unless this is something that you can clearly show from day one how it's going to tie into a key business priority like increased efficiency, higher revenue, lower risk. It, there's many articles out there that'll give you like the four categories of, of either uh, risk or lowering cost or higher revenue. I forget what the fourth one is, but they're all in that bucket. Show them how your product ties into it. Even if the same product you were selling with a different packaging six months ago, it might be time to focus less on growth opportunities and more on cost saving risk lowering because that's what your audience is buying for right now, especially if you have to go through your buyer's CFO. CFOs do not tend to be overly creative people. Tim, we love you. It's my beloved Gong CFO. They are down to basics. When you talk to him about ROI, one of his famous sayings is, everyone talks to me about the I, how much money you want to invest. Show me the R. What's the return on this investment? So if you speak that language now, assume that everyone is being a conservative buyer right now, show them the R in the ROI. That is probably the best thing you can do right now around your messaging, around what you showcase in your product that will get buyers to move the needle right now. Back to basics. I love it. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is CFOs are involved now in like any deal, even if it's like 25K and up, you're, you're going to have to face the CFO now. Someone wrote the other day that CEOs have been demoted and CFOs have been promoted because they're actually calling, calling the shots now. But Udi, thank you so much, man. I always enjoy our conversations. I know our listeners will learn an absolute ton. So much value in that. So many great stories. Excited to watch your journey into this new role and support any way I can. I do appreciate your friendship and appreciate your time. I had a ton of fun, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. And for all those listeners, thanks for hanging out with us. We will see you next week. And if you haven't already, go check out the GTM newsletter and have a great week. Go and take these learnings, apply them. That is key. And we'll see you next week. 